0: If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3 as we're continuing our study through Paul's letter to Galatians. And as you remember from our previous studies, the churches in Galatia were moving away from salvation that was based upon God's grace by faith. And now they're beginning to embrace, embrace a salvation that was based on the law and accomplished by works. You see, these Judaizers were coming in and Paul had already taught them. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But now they came and said, yeah, you need Jesus. That's absolutely right. That's 100% what Paul said is true. But then they added to it. They said, you know, you also have to be circumcised. You also have to keep the law of Moses if you want to be saved. In other words, they're adding works to grace, and thus they made it a work salvation. And the reason I say it's a work salvation is because when you add anything to grace, when you add works to it, It's no longer grace, now it's works and God owes you heaven. And that's absolutely wrong. So Paul's letter is a strong rebuke and a call for them to return to the faith that was entrusted to them. Now this evening as we look at Galatians chapter 3, Paul continues to hammer them on this issue, showing them that salvation by grace through faith is not a New Testament idea. The prophets of old spoke about it and he's going to show us that they were saved by faith. They weren't saved by works as many try to uh, insinuate. So as we've seen and will see, Paul's very passionate about this truth. Why? Because your eternal destiny rests upon what you believe. In fact, Leon Morris put it like this. He said, Galatians is a passionate letter, the outpouring of the soul of a preacher on fire for his Lord and deeply committed to bringing his hearers to an understanding of what saving faith is is absolutely so let's pick up galatians chapter 3 look at verse 1 O foolish galatians who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before the whose eyes jesus christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified now that's pretty strong words you know today you know people are afraid to speak strong words but paul spoke them because they were deserved they needed to hear these things. In fact, Phillips translated this, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. I think that's a little strong. Okay, But you get the idea. And Paul's not saying you know, that they had this mental deficiency, but they failed to use the brain that God had given them. They failed to use their spiritual minds to discern if these things the Judaizers were saying was true. Isn't it amazing what people believe today in the church? Anything anyone popular says, they embrace. Well, no, you, I don't care if they're popular or not popular. You bring it all in the light of God's word. Now, because they're of mental laziness, it clouded their judgment regarding salvation, and Paul says, "Well, who has bewitched you, or used these flattering words to deceive you from the truth?" They're mixed. These guys were mixing them up. They were clouding their minds. And think about it: when most people get involved in cults, get sucked into cults, they're not stupid, not at all. They're very intelligent people, most of them, and they've been misled by people who appeal to their emotions. Their feelings, and they bought into those lies just as the Galatians were doing. And when you look at what is portrayed as Christianity today, it's like many have just turned off their brain and they believe anything again that these popular teachers are telling them, even though it goes against God's word. How many of you have heard of grave sucking? No one. Oh oh, a few of you. Good. All right. This is Bill Johnson kind of as a proponent of this. And it's, the idea here is laying down on the grave of a dead believer to receive their power. You're sucking up the power. Is this a cult or what? But The story is one of the, these proponents, Bill Johnson, tells us, There are anointings, mantles, revelations, and mysteries that have lain unclaimed, literally, where they were left because the generation that walked in them never passed them on. I believe it's possible for us to recover realms of anointing, realms of insight, realms of God that have been untended for decades simply by choosing to reclaim them and perpetuate them for future generations. Foolishness, who has bewitched you? I mean, really? And and Paul's warning here is, hey, look, pay attention. Don't be foolish. Don't be bewitched. Keep your brain, you know, in the word of God. Keep focusing on what God's word has to say. Winds of doctrine will continually blow through the church. It happened early on when the church got its start. It continues on today. And you know what happens with these winds of doctrine? If you don't set your sails to them, they'll just blow through the church. But as soon as you set your sails up, what's going to happen is you're going to be carried away to where the winds of doctrine are taking you, and they're not towards God. These are dangerous areas. Pay attention. Bring everything into the light of God's word. And if it's not of God, then dismiss it. Don't embrace it. In fact, when, they, when Paul talks about you know, how Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified, it's in the perfect passive participle. And what it means is that this was an historical fact, and its results continue on. Here's the problem, though. The Judaizers were clouding that picture up. Think about it like this. I don't know how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon. It's beautiful. Before I ever went to the Grand Canyon, I thought it was a big hole in the ground. I thought, what's the big deal about this? And then I went there, and I saw the beauty of this place. It was amazing. But also, there are times that there's a lot of clouds over the Grand Canyon, so much so that you can't even see the other side. We're standing on the south rim. I couldn't even see the north rim, completely obliterated by the clouds. Now, was the north rim still there? It was absolutely still there. It didn't go anywhere. The clouds were blocking it. And think about it like this. The truth is still there. God's word is still here among us. Don't let someone cloud things over, and instead of seeing the beauty of God's word, you see the foolishness of man. I know someone who was going to who's going to a church where they brought psychology into the church. And this per, I mean it's so this person was on top of what was happening in the world. She knew to bring everything in the light of God's word, and now she's taken in by this false doctrine. She set her sail. She believes that words have power, so she was watching a fo- the football, a Green Bay Packer game with her parents, and her mom said, oh, the Packers are playing dumb today, or something like that. I said, mom, if you do that, that's negative energy. Wow. That's what was brought into the church. They set their sails, and look at where it's taken them, so far away from God. We need to be aware of these things. These Galatians, they allowed their flesh, maybe their pride, to convince them that they could work their way into heaven by keeping the law. But as William Hendrickson said, a supplemented Christ is a supplanted Christ. In other words, if you bring to me a different Jesus, then it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Then you're still lost in your sins. That's how dangerous, that's why Paul is hitting this so hard. We need to keep Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus before us, And you won't be deceived. Spurgeon said, if anything contrary to this comes before him, he does not timely say, everybody has a right to his opinion. But he says, yes, they may have a right to their opinion, and so have I to mine. And my opinion is that any opinion which takes away from the glory of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice is a detestable opinion. Get the real atonement of Christ thoroughly into your soul, and you will not be bewitched. Amen to that. Why are we so fearful to stand up for the truths of God found in the word of God? You know, People today promote all kinds of bizarre doctrines out there. they got all kinds of bizarre ideas, right? And they're not afraid to proclaim them. We have the truth of God. And we're like, well, I don't want to offend anyone. You're going to offend people. It's the word of God. The gospel is offensive to people. I'm not saying be offensive. But when you share the gospel message, when you share with people that they are sinners separated from God it is going to offend them. Remember before you got saved and someone was sharing with you, how did you feel when they share with you that you're a sinner, that you needed a savior? Probably the first time it didn't hit you too good. So we need to be able to give the truths of God, not be afraid to. Paul wasn't. Look at verse 2 of Galatians 3. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul wants them, in a sense, to get their heads on on straight. He wants them to get their heads out of the clouds. And he wants them to think, how were you saved in the first place? By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So now, after all that God has done for you, all that God has freely given to you, you think you could become more spiritual? You You think you can grow in the Lord by adding works to grace? Absolutely not. It's foolish to think that way. If your salvation is based on the law, then you are blessed and you will grow spiritually by earning and deserving it. That's how that works. God owes you in a sense, like I've said. But on the other hand, under grace, you are blessed and you grow by believing and receiving. You see, you don't deserve it. God gives it to us freely. One is truth, one is the, was error. You can't earn and deserve from God, but you can believe and receive. Now, you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, Joe, what are you saying? I, I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to have devotions. I don't have to go to church. Exactly. Who's forcing you to come? Think about that. Who's forcing you to come to church or to pray or read the Bible? Is is there some law out there that says you have to read three chapters today in God's word? Not at all. Here's the thing. You don't have to, but you get to. You get to read God's word. You get to have devotions with him. You get to come to church and worship God and study his word together with other believers. You get to. You see, you don't earn blessings from God. You receive them by faith. God cannot love you any more than he already does. And he can't love you any less. His love's unconditional. And by not reading his word, by not fellowshipping with him, by not going to church, are you going to hurt God? God. Absolutely not, but I'll tell you this, you'll hurt yourself. You will hurt yourself, absolutely. It's foolish to think we can add to our salvation if the work has been completed by Christ. You can't add anything if it's completed. And if we could be saved by the flesh in the first place, or if we can't be, do you really think we could be made perfect in the flesh? Absolutely not. Not by our own efforts. What God has begun in our lives by his spirit, we need to allow him to finish. And Paul's going to continue on. He's going to show us that even in the Old Testament, with Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, he was saved by faith and not by works. Look at verse 6 here in Galatians 3. Just as Abraham believed God... And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the nations by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Obviously, Abraham was highly esteemed by the Jews, and he still is. In fact, they believe the, many Jews believed that Father Abraham would pluck the worst Jew from the fires of hell and hell's reserved for Gentiles. And Paul here is saying, hey, look, I'm using Father Abraham's salvation. And he quotes out of Genesis 15.6 to show these Galatians and Judaizers their error. It's not the physical birth that saves you, it's the spiritual birth, born again. In fact, Paul just got done sharing how these guys, these Galatians were saved by grace through faith. Now he shows them, look, this isn't just a New Testament idea. This isn't just something that we came up with and added to the scriptures. Not at all. This is how Abraham was saved. It was faith and faith alone that caused God to account to Abraham his righteousness. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. That's kind of interesting. That's in the Old Testament. And we see here in Genesis the gospel message in the Old Testament. Abraham was looking to the coming Messiah by faith. We look back on the finished work of the Messiah by faith, the one who's come to take away the sins of the world. That's a free gift. Martin Luther put it like this. He said, when the article of justification has fallen, everything else has fallen. That is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed, It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. Now, as shocking as that may be, dealing with Abraham, the father of the Jews, what Paul is saying is that what the Old Testament tells us, that Abraham's righteousness was not based on his good works. It's because he believed God by faith. See, many people think, well, they were saved differently in the Old Testament than they are in the New Testament. Not at all. They were saved by faith. Not by works at all. In fact, he wasn't circumcised for another 14 years from this point in Genesis that we just spoke of. And the law was still over 430 years down the road. So how could he do that? Turn over to Romans for a second. Romans chapter 4. I want to read a few scriptures here for you to show you this. In Romans chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 9, where Paul says this. Does the blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised? He's talking about Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised Gentiles. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? Well, he was circumcised or uncircumcised. Not well circumcised, but well uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. That's Paul saying, look, it wasn't based on, him being a Jew, the father of the Jews. It wasn't based on him keeping the law. It was based on faith. And it's open to Jews and Gentiles. And think of it. For us, it doesn't matter if you're baptized as an infant or an adult, or you did this ritual or that ritual, you walked on hot coals to some shrine, even if, you know in the Philippines, they love nailing themselves to a cross you know, during Easter time. Is that going to save you? Absolutely not. Jesus saves by repenting, believing, and receiving him into your life. So that means that all who believe, all who are justified by faith, are spiritual descendants of Abraham. And that's an amazing thing that God has done. Not by works, but by faith. But people today continue to try to work their way into heaven. They try to be good enough. Well, let me share this story with you and you'll see what I mean. Some years ago, a missionary to India visited my office and showed me a recent copy of the major English language Indian news magazine. The feature story was on a great Hindu religious festival called Maha Kumbh Mela. I believe that's how it's pronounced, which is celebrated every 12 years at the confluence of the Ganges and Yamuna rivers, called the fabled waters of Sangam. It is claimed to be the world's largest single religious event. Disregarding the difficult journey, the great expense, and the chilling waters, multitudes of the faithful are drawn to the celebration. Caste and economic class are set, temporarily set aside. The festival is led by a group of stark naked holy men who lead a procession of millions of pilgrims down to the water. I don't know the correct pronunciation, but I will just pronounce it like this. Fakers, or holy men, which just makes sense to me because these guys are fakers, sit on beds of nails and walk over broken glass and lie down on hot coals. A common sight is to see worshipers taking long knives and piercing their tongues in order to sentence themselves to eternal silence as a way to appease their mirrored gods. Some worshippers will stare at the sun until they are blinded. Others intentionally cause their limbs to atrophy in gestures of worship. One man held his arm upright for eight years. Although his arm muscles had long since atrophied, his uncut fingernails had continued to grow and descend some two and a half feet below his hands. One Hindu holy book, Book declares those who battle the conflux of the black and white river, the Ganges and Yamuna, go to heaven. Another sacred writing says that the pilgrim who bathes at this place wins absolution for his whole family, and even if he has perpetrated a hundred crimes, he is redeemed the moment he touches the Ganges, whose waters wash away his sins. At this festival, the waterfront is lined with countless shaving booths in which the devoted strip themselves bare and have every hair shaved. Hair is collected, and all the hair is then thrown into the filthy water. Hindu Hindu writings assure pilgrims that for every hair thus thrown in, you are promised a million years' residence in heaven. The article closed with the comment, Millions who come with spiritual hunger depart with peace in their hearts and renewed faith. What a hellish deception. And isn't that what the devil loves to do? To make you feel good about going to hell. They think by doing these things it's going to get them into heaven. Think about that. It's completely a works theology. And if if you could work your way into heaven, if you could be good enough to get into heaven, why did God become flesh and dwell among us? It makes absolutely no sense. It's not like God thought, well, you know, I didn't think about that. Maybe they could just work their way in. In fact, if you remember in the Garden of Eden, what did Jesus pray? Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will be done, but yours. And if there was another way, and the Father let Jesus go to the cross, wow, what kind of God do we worship? He didn't, because there is no other way. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Plain and simple. Paul in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29 said, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Absolutely. And Luther said, The faith of the fathers was directed at the Christ who was to come, while ours rests in the Christ who has come. That's exactly the point. They looked ahead to the coming Messiah. We look back on the finished work, of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Well, back in, in Galatians, chapter 3, look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law, and the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Paul just finished speaking of Abraham, the father of the Jews, and how he was saved by faith. And it would only make sense that the lesser, his descendants, are not going to be saved by good works if Abraham wasn't. And that's what Paul's saying here. You know, living under the law of Moses was not a path to blessings, but it put him under the curse. Because the law can't justify, it can only condemn us. Now, you may be thinking, but what about the many, many Old Testament verses that seem to say there is blessings in keeping the law? Like Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is not speaking about justification and keeping the law. We need to understand that. The law doesn't save us. But here's the beauty. As we walk according to God's word, there is a blessing. Think about that. Think of all the warnings that God gives to us, not to hurt us, but to help us. And so as we follow his word, it is a blessing. It keeps us out of trouble. Do you know how you get rid of AIDS? Do you know how you get rid of sexually transmitted diseases in a generation? Sex between a husband and wife. And that is eliminated. We have an epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases today that the news media doesn't even want to report. And it's because of the sexual freedom that's out there. And it's going against what God's word says, and we're reaping the consequences of that. But the beauty is, if we follow God's word, there's a tremendous blessing. And that goes across the board. And again, the, the law can never save you. Not at all. And Paul is quoting out of Deuteronomy twenty seven twenty six: Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. The New Testament, James tells us in James 2.10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he's guilty of all. Here's the thing. If you want to be saved by the law, you have to be perfect. From the time you are born until the time you die. If you break one law, like lying, stealing, whatever, you're guilty of breaking the entire law before God. It's impossible. Absolutely. We can't do that. Absolutely. God never said that we had to. That was never a way of salvation. That's what Paul's point here is. But there is one who has lived perfectly. And that's Jesus Christ. He was without sin. And that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is the only righteousness that God will accept. Only those that have the righteousness of Christ will go to heaven. That's the only one he, only righteousness he will accept because our righteousness, the Bible says, is like filthy rags. So if you want to live by the law, then you have to keep it perfectly. No sin at all. And again, it's impossible. And we have inherited sin. We have sinned from Adam. So we're already guilty. But here's the beauty. As we repent of our sins, as we ask Jesus to be Lord and Savior of our life, we receive the righteousness of Christ. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness, and as God looks upon us, guess what he sees? He sees us as white as snow. He sees the finished product. And that's why we will enter into heaven. It's because of the work of Christ that's been done for us, and us receiving, believing that in our hearts and our lives. Paul also quotes out of Habakkuk two four, But the just shall live by faith. And Habakkuk is reminded by God to look to him rather than the circumstances that faced him and the nation. I mean, the Babylonians were coming in to invade the southern kingdom of Judah. It was going to be bad. And for us, the just shall not live by the law, but by faith. We don't look at the circumstances, we look at the Savior. And we live. And if if what you're holding on to is not strong enough to hold you, you're in trouble. I mean, think about a ship that's moored to a dock by a chain. And the chain is super strong, except one of the links is very weak. And there's this big storm that comes. And because of that weak link, it breaks apart. And that boat's out to sea. If you try to come to God by your own perfection, by works, it's a very weak, weak link. And it's going to break. And you'll be lost forever. That's just the reality. That's the bad news. But listen to the good news. Look at verse 13. I love this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Paul is telling the Galatians and us that we must place our hope in Christ and not the law. The law has us under the curse, the judgment of God. Christ has brought us out from under the curse by paying in full the penalty for our sins. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, That he himself bore our sins in his own body on a tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Yes. God has forgiven us all of our sins, they've been paid in full. What a wonderful thing. First Peter three eighteen, this is from the Amplified Bible, for Christ the Messiah Himself died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, that he might bring us to God. In his human body he was put to death, but he was made alive in the Spirit. Think about that. Jesus Christ didn't come to uh, keep us out of hell in a sense. He came to save us, to bring us to the Father. Sin had separated us from the Father. But now, because of his atonement that he has given to us, he brings us to the Father. We have access to our Father in heaven. The promise is received. It's not earned, guys. One writer wrote this. He said, the Galatians imagined that Christ only half purchased them, And that they had to purchase the rest by their submission to circumcision and other Jewish rites and ceremonies. Hence their readiness to be led away by false teachers and to mix up Christianity and Judaism. Paul says here, according to the Welsh translation, Christ hath wholly purchased us from the curse of the law. Absolutely. He saved us completely. And, you know, I think for human beings, we like to be able to, to do something. Okay, that's that's wonderful. What do I have to do? No, you don't understand. The work's been done for you. It's already been paid in full for you. You just receive it by faith. Okay, that's great, but isn't there something I can do? It's been done. Now, do we serve the Lord? Absolutely we do, but we serve him out of love, not for salvation. We love him, so we serve him. And if he didn't redeem us completely from sins, then we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. We're still in trouble. Keep in mind that he, after he died and rose from the grave, he went and he was seated at the right hand of the Father because the work was completed. And the Father accepted that sacrifice that Jesus made. If the work wasn't completed, he would have never sat down. Think about in the temple. How many chairs were in the temple? None. Because the priest's work was never done. There were always offering sacrifices. The morning and the evening and all these other sacrifices that were going on. The work was never done, but the work was finished by Christ. So our great high priest, from the order of Melchizedek, sat down because the work was finished. Look at verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls, it, annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law... It is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So Paul now speaks of God's unchanging nature in regards to his covenant with Abraham. And to prove his point, he says, take a look at human covenants that are made and how they're not to be broken or changed. Today it's a little different. We do break uh, these uh, contracts and things that we made. This was a big deal back then. Now, Some Jews feel that this promise made to Abraham and his descendants speaks of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. We might call it the seeds. But Paul says, look, don't miss the point here, guys. It's to your seed. It's singular. And if they still didn't get it, Paul says that the seed is Christ. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. Yes, the Mosaic covenant was A bilateral covenant. The law was a bilateral covenant. If you did this, then God would honor it by doing that. But the Abrahamic covenant was a unilateral covenant based upon the faithfulness of God and not of man. In fact, like we said, the law came over 430 years later. But it cannot invalidate the covenant that was previously ratified by God to Abraham. God's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? That's not going to change. In fact, here in in Galatians 18, the word gave is in the Greek. It's based in the Greek word charis or grace. God freely gave Abraham this promise. It was a grace gift. And this word's in the perfect tense. The gift is permanent. It can't be voided. It can't be taken away. Well, man, praise God for that, right? This gift that God has given to us that's in Christ Jesus can never be taken away from us. Then you may be thinking, okay, if this is true, why was the law given in the first place? Well, that is a great question. I'm sure that Paul thought about these Judaizers and maybe these other Jews in Galatia were thinking of the same thing. Then what's the point of giving the law? If it's all about grace, if it's all about faith, Why give the law in the first place? Well, look at verse 19. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law, then, against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. One of the reasons the law was given was to show man God's holy standard and in doing so it may restrain man from transgressing against God and ultimately destroying himself. Think about laws we have today. There, are there laws out there that says you shouldn't steal? That you, you know, can't break into somebody's house? That you can't kill someone? Are there laws out there? Absolutely. And it does restrain people to some extent. Does that mean everyone is restrained? No, obviously not. But that's the idea. And before you think yourself, you know, doing really good, what do you think about when you see a sign as you're walking down the street, don't walk on the grass? Don't you want to just do that? I mean, inside, that's what, I don't know, maybe it's just me. But I want to do it. I see a sign that says don't walk on the grass. I'm like, well, come on, it's grass, man. It's supposed to be walked on. Yeah, sometimes that's what the law does too. Now, not only does the law show us that we're sinners, obviously it does, but Paul says the law is only temporary. It was only until the Messiah came. And that means the law is inferior to the promise. Well, why? Because the law was limited in what it could do. It can't save you, but show you how far short you have come to God's standard of perfection. The law, we're going to see, brings us to Jesus. Now, this Galatians 3.20 is a little strange. Uh, Paul said, Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. What does that mean? Well, think about it like this. The Greek text of Galatians 3.20 is, again, difficult to interpret. But Paul, I think, is pointing to the mediator, literally one who stands between two parties, that it's only needed when more than one party is involved. And God gave the covenant directly to Abraham without a mediator. Why? Because he was the only one involved in making the covenant. Abraham was a witness to the covenant. He was the beneficiary to the covenant. But he was not a party to it. He had no part in establishing or keeping the covenant. Whose responsibility of this covenant for this covenant? It was God's responsibility. His alone. The covenant of law not only involved mediators, you know, angels, Moses, as we saw here, but mutual obligations on the two parties, God and Israel. You know, you walk this way and, you know, God's gonna bless you. That was the law. But that's not the new covenant that God has given to us. And I think that's the idea. Now, when you think about the law, again, probably one of the things that comes to your mind is do this, don't do that. That's pretty much what, it, what people think about, I think, most of the time. But I kind of want you to think of the law this way because I think it's a really good illustration, a really good point. Think of the law as a mirror. The law, again, is limited in what it could do. It can't save us but show us how far short we are to God's standard of perfection. And think about what a mirror does. It's a reflection of us. It's a reflection of what we look like, isn't it? When you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, you're like, what happened? It's like someone just, you know, when I used to have longer hair, oh my gosh, it's like my hair was all over the place. Like, oh my gosh. You look in the mirror and you go, wow, my wife didn't tell me there was broccoli in there. Can the mirror make me look better? No, it can't fix me. All the mirror does is show me what I look like in the morning and it's not pretty. This takes a lot of work. Don't laugh. That's the law. We look at God's word, we see God's standards, and we look at that and we go, and we look at our own lives. Wow, I missed it. I missed it badly. That's what the law does. The law can't make you better. It only shows how far short you are from God's righteousness. And the law is not bad. The law is not evil. Not at all. The law is good. The law is perfect, the Bible says. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. We are not good. We are not perfect. We can't keep it. When we look in that mirror and we see ourselves in the morning and, you know, hair all over the place, is the mirror bad? Do you think, i got to get a better mirror because this is making me look really bad. No, it's you. Is the law bad? No, we are. And I think that's important for us to understand because we can't do it on our own, and that's the whole point. That's what the law is about. It's to drive us to our Savior. Think about it, you know, today we don't want to talk about sin because it makes people uncomfortable and it makes them,, you know, feel bad. So we don't want to tell them about sin. We just want to talk to them about Jesus. Who is Jesus? He's the Savior. What's he saving me from? I don't want to say sin. I don't know. What are you going to say? You see, your sin has separated you from God. He's come to save you. He's paid in full the penalty for your sin. And that's exactly why the law is there. You show people, you let them tell you that they're sinners. You go, hey, you know, why are you going to heaven? Because I'm a good person. Oh, that's great. That's, I'm glad to meet a good person. Have you ever stolen anything? Like a pencil, paperclip, anything? Oh, yeah, I have. Okay, so you're a thief. And you can go on and on and just use the law. And they're telling you that they're sinners. So, that's the, so would God allow you into heaven as a sinner? I never thought about it like that. Well, That's the bad news, but I got some good news for you. God became flesh. He dwelt among us to pay in full the penalty for our sins. And by repenting of your sin and receiving Jesus Christ into your life as Lord and Savior, your sins are forgiven. They're paid in full. When God looks at you, there is no record of sin at all because the work has been completed by Jesus. Praise God for that. That's what the law does. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. His righteousness has been imputed into our lives by faith. Back in Galatians 3, look at verse 22. But the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Scriptures have have confined us. They, in a sense, put us in prison. Why? Because of our failure to keep the law perfectly. Again, that's the problem. You know, Morris said sin is personified as a jailer, keeping sinners under its control so that they cannot break free. And that's the horrible problem. That's the condition of mankind. But by faith in Christ, like I said, the finished work on the cross of Calvary that he accomplished, we can enter in. Again, Morris said, far from being the gateway into a glorious liberty, it turns out to be a jailer shutting, shutting people up. The result is that the only way of escape was through faith. And that is Paul's point. That's what he's trying to drive home to these Galatians and obviously to us By the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 23 of Galatians 3. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. In the previous verses, Paul said, Scripture has confined us all under sin, or has confined us in prison. Here the idea is more of protective custody. Uh, The law has us under guard in a sense. Yes, sin imprisons, uh, imprisons us under the law, but also the law protects us if we walk in the ways of God. It was the tutor. One writer put it like this, the tutor was not a teacher or schoolmaster proper, but rather a slave employed by Greek or Roman families whose duty was to supervise young boys on behalf of their parents. They took the young uh, charges to and from school, made sure they studied their lessons, and trained them in obedience. They were strict disciplinarians, scolding and whipping as they felt it necessary. Paul told the Corinthian believers, who often behaved like spoiled children, that even if they were to have countless tutors in Christ, he would be their only father through the gospel. Continuing the contrast of this tutor and father, he, asks, he later asked, Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The role of the tutor was never permanent, and it was a great day of deliverance when a boy finally gained freedom from his tutor. His purpose was to take care of the child until he grew into adulthood. At that time, the relationship was changed. Though the two of them might remain close and friendly, the tutor, having completed his assignment, had no more authority or control over the child. Now a young man. And the young man had no more responsibility to be directly under the tutor. The sole purpose of the law, God's divinely appointed tutor, was to lead men to Christ, that they may be justified. After a person comes to him, there is no longer need for the external ceremonies and rituals to act as guides and disciplinarians because the new inner principles operate through the indwelling Christ and whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The law in the ceremonial sense is done away with, though in the moral sense it remains always an intimate friend that one seeks to love and favor. Before Christ came, the law of the external ritual and ceremony, especially the sacrificial system, pictured the once for all perfect and effective sacrifice of Christ for the sins of the world. When the perfect Christ comes into the believer's heart, those imperfect pictures of him have no more purpose or significance. Now, how does the law drive us to Christ? By showing us that we're sinners. Sinners separated from God. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Think about it like this. Moses, the lawgiver, Did he bring the children of Israel into the promised land? No, he brought them to the border of the promised land. Why? Because the law can't save. Who brought the children of Israel into the promised land? Yahshua. Joshua. He's the one that led them in. And it's only through Jesus who could lead us into this new life by faith. The law could only take us so far. Jesus is the one who brings us in. But the law brings us to Jesus. It shows us that our sins have separated us from God. And now we're to the Savior, and we receive that free gift of life that's found in him. Look at verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. How do we become sons of God? By faith in Jesus Christ. Clothing ourselves or putting on the Lord Jesus. One commentator put it like this. The ancient Romans had a coming of age ceremony called toga viralis, which was somewhat like the Jewish bar mitzvah. The ceremony signified a boy's reaching the age of manhood, which varied between the ages of 14 to 17, and full Roman citizenship, with all its rights and privileges. He no longer had a tutor, but was now a recognized adult, responsible for his own welfare and actions. You have all experienced a spiritual toga viralis, Paul told the Galatian believers in effect. And in light of that stupendous truth, why would you consider going back under the tutorship of the law? Obviously, that just makes sense. We're one in Christ now. Jews and Gentiles have been brought together, men and women. That's a radical statement. Rabbis, in their morning prayers, would often pray, I thank God I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Look at what Christ has done. He put us all on a level playing field. Yes, we have different responsibilities, but we're all equal in Christ. Jew, Gentile, male, female. It doesn't matter your background. And what we see, look at what's going on in our country today. Look at the divisions that are going on in our nation. I, you know, I grew up, kind of in my teenage years, close to my teenage years, in the 60s and the 70s, when all the the protests and stuff going on, I think it's worse today. Uh, You know, after the presidential elections, and I I realize people would be upset at, at how they turned out, but some of my friends on Facebook, and really some of my family on Facebook who are not saved, I couldn't believe the hatred and the anger that they put forth hey, you know what? This is not the end of the world. It's not happening yet. We're getting closer to the Lord's return. How do I know that? Because the Cubs won the World Series. Guys, wake up! No. You look at the world events that are happening today, you can't miss the signs that are there. But there is such anger and hatred between races of people i don't even understand that we're all the same race do we you understand that i don't even i hate when they say what race are you human that's i mean my great 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 grandfather was adam i go all the way back to him and everyone traces their lineage back to adam so we're part of the human race does it matter what the color of our skin is why do we have to differentiate i'll tell you what man when i was younger i I, actually several years ago i'd go on a cruise they thought i was from jamaica the guys on the boat they would tell my wife oh you brought home a jamaican boy didn't you that's how dark i would get because i get very dark i'm italian that's just the way it happens for me But why do we have to differentiate? And now we've got all this other stuff. And what has Christ done? He says, you know what? We're all on the same playing field here, guys. The common denominator is Jesus. Oh, now they're seeing the problem. You see, apart from him, there is chaos. But in Christ, there is peace. And what do we see in this nation and in this world? Chaos. Apart from Christ. I was amazed. Max was telling me tonight that uh, last night, and I don't remember what time it was, that uh, the uh, immigration webpage in Canada crashed because so many Americans are thinking about moving to Canada. Praise God, man. God bless you. Have a good time. You're moving to Canada. It's cold up there. You think it's cold in Wisconsin. My wife's from Canada. That's how crazy it is. We need to be able to bring healing, and that healing is only going to come from Jesus. Because we're all, there is no one who's greater or lesser in the eyes of God. It's not, you know, are we under the law? Are you a Jew or Gentile? Are you a slave or free man? Are you a man or woman? Are you Christ? Do you know him? And if you don't, then you need to come to him because there is salvation that is only found in him. Law and grace, it's difficult for some to understand. Listen to what Ironside wrote, and I think this is a great illustration of the law and grace. He said, some years ago, I had a little school school for young Indian men and women who came to my home in Oakland, California, from the various tribes in northern Arizona. One of these was a Navajo young man of unusually keen intelligence. One Sunday evening, he went with me to our young people's meeting. They were talking about the epistle to the Galatians, and the special subject was law and grace. They were not very clear about it, and finally one turned to the Indian and said, I wonder whether our Indian friend has anything to say about this. He rose to his feet and said, Well, my friends, I've been listening very carefully because I'm here to learn all I can in order to take it back to my people. I do not understand all that you are talking about, and I do not think you do yourselves. But concerning this law and grace business, let me see if I can make it clear. I think it is like this. When Mr. Ironside brought me from my home, we took the longest railroad journey I ever took. We got out at Barstow, and there I saw the most beautiful railroad station hotel I had ever seen. I walked around and saw at one end a sign, Do not spit here. I looked at the sign and then looked down on the ground and saw many had spitted there. And before I think what I'm doing, I have spitted myself. Isn't that strange when the signs say, do not spit here. I come to Oakland and go to the home of a lady who invited me to dinner today. And I am in the nicest home I have been in. Such beautiful furniture and carpets. I hate to step on them. I sank into a comfortable chair and the lady said, now John, you sit there while I go out and see whether the maid has dinner ready. I look around at the beautiful pictures at the grand piano and I walk all around these rooms. I'm looking for a sign and the sign I'm looking for is this, do not spit here. But I look around those two beautiful drawing rooms and I cannot find a sign like this. I think what a pity when this is such a beautiful home to have people spitting all over it. Too bad they don't put up a sign. So I look all over the carpet, but I cannot find that anybody have spit it there. What a queer thing. Where the sign says, do not spit, a lot of people spit it. Where there was no sign at all in that beautiful home, nobody spit it. Now I understand. That sign is law, but inside the home, it is grace. They love their beautiful home, and they want to keep it clean. They do not need a sign to tell them so. I think that explains the law and grace business. As he sat down, a murmur of approval went around the room, and the leader exclaimed, I think that is the best illustration of law and grace I've ever heard. I agree. As I close this evening, let me leave you with these words from John Stout. He kind of summarizes what we've been studying this evening. He wrote, We cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. But once we have gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin, guilt, and condemnation, we must not stay there. We must let Moses send us to Christ. Absolutely. As Paul said in verses 8 and 9 of Galatians 3, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed, so then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Praise God for his indescribable gift that he's given to us. A salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. A salvation that is just based totally upon Jesus Christ. What a wonderful gift he has given to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this evening. And Lord, I'm sure we all struggle from time to time with this whole idea of, of the law or being good enough you know, for, for you to love us more. And we try to do this and we fail and we beat ourselves up because we think, oh, now God's not going to love me and how untrue that is. God's love is unconditional. It doesn't change. It's not based upon me. It's based upon him. And I'm so thankful for that, Lord. And I'm so thankful that I can have an assurance of my salvation because it's not based upon my finished work, which I would fail miserably, but it's based on the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. Hallelujah for that. Thank you, Lord, for the work you've done for us, the gift you've given to us, eternal life. And Lord, for any that may not know you, I pray, Lord, that their hearts would be softened, their eyes would be opened, and they'd come to that saving faith. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful evening.